Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we're releasing another bonus episode. This is a recent interview given on the Connected by Controversy podcast with Professor Chris White. Chris White has been a guest on our show, both Boundless Body Radio and the How to Make a Podcast podcast, and I have recently been hosted on his podcast with the episode title being Wellness Controversies. Chris messaged me a few weeks ago and asked if I had any interest in co-hosting an episode where he would interview a certain Gary Tobbs. (laughs) My reply, which I ended up tweeting out later, was, dude, shut your face. Gary Tobbs has been such a massive influence um, in my life and in the life of my clients. He's the author of several books, and he's a really good fit for Connected by Controversy. Gary does a really good job in all of his content, making a very strong case against the now traditional paradigm of the calories in, calories out model of weight balance and health. Um, Gary really cites a lot of bad science and really oversimplistic views on health and weight balance and really makes a strong case for the hormonal theory of health and weight balance, especially when it comes to the hormone insulin. Chris White is transitioning more over to YouTube, so I wanted to be sure to make this episode available on a podcast format so you can check out the audio form. Be sure to go over to YouTube and review and share that video. And now without further ado, here is the Connected by Controversy podcast with Chris White, the one and only Gary Tobbs, and myself. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Connected by Controversy. I'm your host, Chris White. I also have a guest co-host with me today, my friend and fellow podcaster, Casey Ruff, talking to us from Utah. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And our guest today is someone that Casey and I both have been following for a long time. His name is Gary Taubes. He's a best-selling author of many important books that really overturn what most Americans believe to be the correct path to, to food-based wellness, or how, however you want to put it. Although his books have gone a long way towards making uh, this uh, science much more mainstream. His first book established the science behind a low-carbohydrate diet, and it was called Good calories, bad calories. Sorry, that wasn't your first book. I know that was your first book, first book on this topic. And he had a later shortened version, uh, which is the first one I picked up, and that was called Why We Get Fat. And I thought that was a good introduction to it all. So I went back and read the, the longer version, Good Calories, Bad Calories. But then he wrote other books like The Case Against Sugar, which is just a bombshell um, as far as I'm concerned, and The Case for Keto, which is the latest one. So welcome to the program, Gary. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. And I, Casey, great to meet you. It's great to meet you too. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, what is it that really motivated you to uh, kind of bring this science to the mainstream to kind of popularize this, if you will? I don't think I ever actually thought of it that way. So I started writing about this uh, series of investigative articles for the journal Science in the late 90s. I was always interested in good science and bad science. And my first two books were about controversial or episodes in science where researchers had gotten the wrong answer. Um, I went from there into public health because my friends in the physics community told me that if I was interested in bad science, that that's the place I should focus. Uh, And then I stumbled into nutrition um, in the late 90s and a couple of big pieces for the journal Science that won Science Journalism Awards. And the, the next natural subject to do was obesity. And then it just one thing led to another. I wanted to write a book on this. I'd been fascinated by 
you know, the how difficult it is to do science in any subject right. That was always that was a theme of my first two books. And so I thought, you know, if I could get a, enough of an advance to justify writing a book about it, then I would I could write a book on on obesity and chronic disease. It turned out to be an enormous subject and to take me, you know, three years longer than I had thought, which is always the problem with every good book. And, you know, one thing led to another, as I explained in Why We Get Fat, I had finished Good Calories, Bad Calories is a tome. It's like 500 pages plus another 150 pages of bibliography and endnotes. And I had a lot of people say to me afterwards, you know, hey, your book changed my life, but could you please write one that, you know, my husband could read or my father could read or my doctor could read or doctors emailed me and said, how about writing one that I could give to my patients and they could read. So then you start popularizing it. So why we get fat was a sort of airplane reading polemical version of good calories, bad calories, just so I could make the arguments and people who wanted to dive deeper could go back to good calories, bad calories. Um, the case against sugar seemed like a book that had to be written. And honestly, I wasn't all that interested in doing it because I felt I had covered a lot of that material in my earlier books, but it just, somebody had to write that book. And by 2014 or so, when I started, it was, I thought I was the person who was best placed to do it. And there are clearly people out there who disagree with me, but, um, you know, so that was it. And then the case for keto was just taking these arguments one step further, trying to, you know, they're popular books, but I'm trying to reshape the discussion and the arguments too, because a lot of it gets, you're fighting this conventional thinking in the field and the conventional thinking keeps sort of, it's got such a huge gravitational pull that it keeps pulling everything back into it. And so there's this sort of constant effort you have to make to keep reshaping the arguments or redefining the arguments so that they're being made on what you think is the right or what I think is the right terms. No doubt. And Casey, feel free to jump in anytime. Yeah, sure. I'm just wondering, like, here we are in the Connected by Controversy podcast. Why is the world of nutrition so controversial at this point? Like, do you think we would have kind of sorted things out by now? But it just seems like a constant quagmire of people's opinions and, and you know, the government standing by what they're saying for, for, you know, their guidelines, which clearly have not worked. I just, I love your books and the way you set up the case for keto in particular, where it is a case. I, I feel like I'm sitting there, you know, listening to an argument, which is the way you set it up. And I really appreciate that. I, I'm just wondering, why, how did we get to this point where everything is so controversial in nutrition, even to this day? Well, so, and this is, I think, what my books ultimately are about. The book I'm working on now is on diabetes and diet. And, you know, you could have just written the summary of what I'm trying to explain. How did we get to the point where the recommended diet for diabetes is that patients should eat, get most of their calories from the one macronutrient they can't metabolize without pharmaceutical assistance? I mean, it's crazy, but yet this is what happened. And you know, maybe there was a good reason for it. So you, you go looking for it. Um, I think there are a lot of it. First of all, nutrition is, you know, it's fundamental to human health. So it's something we're all interested in. We all think we understand because if we're healthy and we eat well, we have this association that we then, you know, assume implies causality and we decide we're healthy because of the way we eat. But we the very few subjects that we are as intimately uh, related to and understand and 
misunderstand as nutrition. And then you have a science where you can't do the experimental tests necessary to confirm the hypothesis. So, you know, I've spent my life writing about good science and bad science and controversial subjects and different sciences. And, you know, I think that the, we all think of science, you, know, you, you hear this phrase, it's hypothesis and test. But what you don't understand is how vitally important it is to be able to do the tests and do them cheaply and reproducibly and quickly so that if you think you've discovered something new, you can test it. And then when you realize that you did the, the experimental test wrong, you could redo the experimental test. And then you could redo it again when your colleagues down the hall tell you how you misinterpreted the second one. And then when you do the third one and you present it in a symposia to your your colleagues in your department, and they now explain to you what you screwed up on in that and why you can't trust that result. You can just keep doing the experiment over and over and over again. And then when you finally get it to the point that you can't figure out how you screwed it up, now you can publish a paper or evidence for an effect of, you know, branch chain amino acids on heart disease risk factors, question mark. And you explain how you did the experiment and people in every other institutions around the country and around the world can do the same thing. But it's vitally important that you be able to experimentally test your hypotheses and do it quickly and cheaply. And you can't do that in nutrition because the experiments that we're talking about are about chronic disease states that take years to decades to manifest themselves. So almost by definition, your experiments are going to take years to decades to play out. They're going to, the, you can shorten the time by using more subjects, but the more subjects you use, the less control you have over the experiment. And so you're making compromises everywhere along the line. And what you end up with is a whole world of research, hundreds and hundreds of articles being published every week. None of them particularly meaningful or capable of resolving these controversies. So, you know, there's a statement, uh, I probably, maybe I can get this quote exactly. Um, hold on. This is in my diabetes book. So, passion. Diet has always generated passion and passion and science is an infallible marker of lack of evidence. That was from wow. Lynn, Lynn Sawyer and Edwin Gale. Gale was a, one of the, the sort of influential British diabetologists of the late 20th century. Wow. Um, and that's what you've got here. You've just got a lack of definitive evidence so people can argue about it endlessly. And it really is controversial because people take it so personally, not only on a cultural level. You know, think about when you go into someone else's home even in your own country, let alone in another country, and you don't want to eat what they have, what they're serving. And they take it personally. It's the implications of it are beyond just you refusing the food that they cooked. And then, and then the other side is if you point out how someone's eating something wrong, or you don't even have to point it out, you can just refuse to eat what they're eating. Then that's an insult to them as well. And so you, it's always kind of at least that's what I've found socially is you're treading on this kind of ground. You're in social situations. They, someone prepares a meal and you go, hold on, you know, that's not the kind of stuff I eat because I don't think that's very healthy. And if I turn this down, then it's going to be uh, problematic. You know, this social situation is going to be problematic. Oh, and now it's, of course, you know, the climate change issue has turned it into arguments about 
you know, the health of the planet, just like COVID and, and, and masking and vaccines, your actions, you know, my actions in Oakland are going to have effects on, you know, your children's future. And I forget where Marshall is. Where is Marshall? In West, West Virginia. West Virginia. Yeah. yeah. You know, so yeah. it's sort of like we now live in this, this, you know, this globally connected environment where every decision we make has implications for the health of others, supposedly arguably and for you know ethical implications so people don't like the ethical choices we're making and you know it's fascinating because all this has happened one thing twitter and the internet has done is that somehow all those things that we were raised as children not to talk about remember like polite dinner table conversation doesn't include religion or politics and now all we do and is in you know broadcast our beliefs about at least nutritional <laughs> You know, it issues that are almost as akin to religion and politics every day on Twitter. And then we're stunned when people get insulted or try to shame us in response. It's, it's crazy what's happened. Wow. Yeah, that is really crazy. I'm I'm curious to know, right? Most of us have grown up in this world where we're, we're, we've grown up, candy has been present. There's always been McDonald's. Um, you know, we don't take it for, we, we, we take it for granted that we can go to the store and buy an apple 365 days out of the year. There's things like fake butter and all these plant meats are coming up. Most of us don't appreciate kind of the history of how nutrition has changed over time. I'm wondering if you could give us a brief history of how we may have eaten and how some of the messages that we've been given in the last, you know, 60, 70 years nutritionally have, have changed over time. Well, that's, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the answer. Clearly the food environment has changed. Okay. So it's changed in an enormous number of ways from the McDonald's at the corner to what the McDonald's is serving. By the way, I am a big fan of McDonald's. Um, when I was younger and I used to travel a lot of you know, you found a McDonald's somewhere. You knew what you were going to get for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's going to taste exactly <laughs> like it did in Santa Monica, California, or wherever I happen to be traveling from at that day and age. Um, the uh, so the, the the quantity of food available has changed. The quality of food available has changed. The processing of the food, the you know, you pick it. It's all changed. And with that change is this associated change in obesity and diabetes status, you know, this sort of manifestation. Here's a technical way of putting it, the obese diabetic phenotype. So 60 years ago, you know, one in 30 Americans suffered from diabetes. Now it's like, actually, it was probably one in 100. Now it's like one in seven. Um 60 years ago, one in eight Americans were obese, suffered from obesity. Now it's like one in every two and a half, maybe. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, you can't walk around, you can't be my age and not notice that the world has changed, that, the you know, both the nutrition available and the, the question is what aspect of it. So you see the same and this was part of the case for sugar in this book. You see these same epidemics of obesity and diabetes and, and the chronic diseases that associate with them manifest everywhere in the world where population transitions from eating whatever its native indigenous diet was to Western diet and lifestyle. Um, and then the question is what, is, what aspect of that diet and lifestyle is triggering the manifestation of this obese diabetic phenotype? That's how I think of it. And the conventional thinking is either, you know, energy balance or these people eat too much or they, 
They, they, they're too sedentary when they become westernized. They ceased working, you know, being hardworking laborers, and they have all these labor-saving devices and too much food available. Another way to look at it is it's a multifactorial complex problem, and basically you've got all these things changing. Anything that changes is part of the problem. And then there are people like me saying, wait, let's, I'm not willing to throw out Occam's razor yet. So let's start with the simplest possible hypothesis, which is you add sugar and white flour to their diets. You end up with obesity and diabetes epidemics and everything that follows. And maybe these other factors play roles, but, you know, they're, they're absurdly trivial in comparison, but yeah, the, one of the problems, again, is you've got a, a whole slew of things changing. I mean, a, you know, an infinite amount of changes to diet and lifestyle. The question is, can you identify what are the key, the critical factors? Yeah, I really appreciate that historical approach that you take. Uh, it kind of reminds me of something I do in my, hist- my history classes where, at Marshall where I say, let's rewind the tape to when this wasn't happening. And, and that's, uh, you, you paint that picture many times. Like when you talk about Pacific Islanders, for example, um, and uh, like off the coast, I mean, the, the Pacific Islands and even indigenous peoples in general, if they've been taken over, then you, and you can see it in the United States, of course, too, but uh, in particular places like uh, Indian Ocean also, um, you see people that uh, they've been displaced and they used to live on things like uh, coconut and crabs and fish. And uh, and they were ripped. I mean, the people looked like like boxers, like Olympic boxers. And uh, and then you see them a generation afterwards, and all of a sudden there's all this obesity, highest rates of obesity in the world, and it can't be an accident. They didn't just decide to change their lifestyle. Can you well, talk this about is what, that? it's hard to find quite such definitive comparisons. Although there are people who did, like Weston Price, the famous. Dayton dentist who traveled around the world in the 1930s and wrote uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration and basically found in the 1930s populations of similar genetic background that were eating Western diets and, you know, the similar population that was isolated and wasn't. And related, you know, he was looking, he was a dentist, so he was looking at teeth and the jaw structure and taking photos of their teeth. It's a remarkable book if you haven't read it. It's a great travel log and, um, and he's got these populations. So like he starts in the Swiss Alps and he starts with a population that lives high up in the Alps in a village and they have no access, you know, half the year to the rest of Switzerland. So they have to live only on locally grown food and they have beautiful teeth and they're in perfect health. And then he compares them to like, you know, their, their relatives who live in Zurich and, you know, eat Western diets and they have cavities and tooth decay and all these issues. And he does this everywhere in the world, Africa, the U.S. Um, you can find these populations if you go looking for them in the literature. And the, one of my problems with the nutrition science as it's done is that people don't do these jobs. I often get criticized because at the the, um, epilogue to good calories, bad calories, I criticize the researchers in the field. I said, I never actually use the word scientist to describe the researchers doing research on this intersection of nutrition, chronic disease, and obesity, because I don't believe that they actually do functional science. It's like they're playing a game. And you know, one of the reasons I say that, because if they were doing good science, they would have done this, what I did. 
you would go back in time and say, look, we have an epidemic of obesity and diabetes. Let's find where it begins. And let's see what changed when it begins or changed in the 20 years before it began in case it's an intrauterine you know, generational effect. And let's go to other populations because we can go around the world. I've had you know, meetings with researchers who believe, for instance, that the obesity and diabetes effect is, is caused by uh, you know, various chemicals that are affecting the, our gut biome, uh, antidepressants, for instance, or antibiotics. And I say, okay, well, let's have you gone through the exercise of finding populations that don't have those chemicals in the water supply? <laughs> And ask yourself, do you see the obesity diabetes epidemics there? Because if you do, that's a strong argument that, you know, at the very least, what you're claiming is, is causative is only a secondary or tertiary factor. And invariably, it's like they never thought to say, you know, what about South Pacific Islanders? They experience massive epidemics in obesity and diabetes. If I go there and look at their water supply, will I find these chemicals in their water supply? It's like, Science 101, it's the first question you would ask, and yet they don't do it. Um, it's an interesting problem. Yeah, I was just talking to Nina Teicholz the other day. I mentioned this. And I said, you know, it would be interesting to do a FOIA request at the NIH. I don't know how this would be done to see if just to FOIA our names, because we've both written books challenging the sort of official NIH uh, thinking on the relationship between diet and chronic disease. It would be interesting to see if anywhere at anyone at the NIH said, let's, these challenges, you know, clearly they, these books get good reviews. Nina's, you know, was on many top 10 lists. Let's see if anyone said, why don't, maybe somebody should read their books mm. and see if there's anything to this. All we did basically is look at the critics to the diet nutrition story and ask the question, can we, you know, were they right in their criticism? We weren't the first ones to make these critiques. Other ones did it, and the other ones did it in the literature, and they referenced articles. So we could go to their references and see if the articles were correctly interpreted and see if there are other articles that they left out, other reports that might have, you know, were they cherry-picking? We could do all of that and come to some conclusion about the validity of their criticism. So the question is, does our government do that? Did anyone say... Let's see if Taubes and Teicholz got it right. Let's find some enterprising young postdoc, you know, buried in, you know, NIH building 207-32 and ask him to re-report their books and find out, should we pay attention to this? I'm willing to bet they didn't, but it'd be nice to know if, you know, one way or the other. And that's what I mean by the sort of lack of all scientific curiosity. Could these people be right? Right. Yeah, it's such a crazy concept that they wouldn't even check it out, really. Most people that I meet with when I'm doing a consultation with somebody, they think that something is fundamentally wrong with them. Like they tried the advice, they tried to do it, it worked for a while, they got kind of tired, they were really hungry, they ended up running out of willpower and they couldn't continue doing it. So let's wait until Monday, let's wait until next January, we'll restart the program, pay a trainer like me more money to tell them to go and do the same thing. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us the very basics about the, the current model 
of calories in, calories out, and weight management versus what you're proposing in your books and the case that you make. And knowing that I was just at the store, and as I was walking by to check out my food, on the vending machine for all the sodas, it says right on the machine, balance what you eat, drink, and do. And his message is everywhere. So, of course, I'm going to trust my soda company. I can, you know, drink this soda and it's going to be fine if I go on an hour and a half walk or whatever it is. Can you can you talk about the difference in the position between the calories in, calories out model that everybody knows? It's so ubiquitous. Everybody knows you just need to eat less and move more versus what you're proposing. Well, and so this is, yeah, conventional thinking since the Second World War, although not necessarily before, is that you get fat because you eat too much. I mean, it seems obvious, right? And I believe this when I first started writing about um, obesity for the New York Times Magazine. I have a line in this infamous article I wrote, cover story, that says, you know, of course, obesity is caused by taking in more calories than you expend. That's what everyone believes. It's like it's a, the latest variation on this, which was proposed recently by Kevin Hall of the NIH and his colleagues, is that the cause of obesity is fundamentally all the this food environment works at a subconscious level to trigger people who are predisposed to get fat and basically eat too much. And then that the predisposition is that the the food environment triggers a subconscious eating too much of calories or energy imbalance. They can't balance their intake to their expenditure, even though you know, as I've argued to do that and not gain weight requires perfect energy balance. And that's another discussion. So fundamentally, everything we do is about getting people to eat less. You know, in this diabetes book that I'm working, I'm looking at one document after another where they say, well, we don't really know how to get people to lose weight, but we know we got to get them to eat less. And that's what we're going to keep telling them. And if you go to a dietitian, they'll tell you to eat less. Or if you go to a physical trainer, they'll up your exercise, hoping somehow if you increase the intake, the expenditure, your intake will be less in comparison. Um, the conventional was the alternative hypothesis. Obesity isn't an energy balance problem. It's a physiological disorder. It's a fat accumulation defect. Your body wants to store too much calories as fat. It's triggered by the carbohydrate content of the environment. So you add sugar and white flour to any environment, you create people who now store excess calories as fat and they accumulate excess fat and get fatter. So carbohydrates are literally fattening. And it's a strange thing of all the controversy you hear, you know, on Twitter and there are articles now published questioning the carbohydrate insulin model and insisting that it's somehow naive that ultimately is do we get fat because we eat too much or is it the carbohydrates in the diet that make us fat are they literally fattening do they create a hormonal milieu in your circulation that fosters excess fat accumulation um that's the argument if they do uh and you actually pay attention to the physiology of fat accumulation and fat metabolism, then pretty much the only solution is, is more or less rigid abstinence. It's a phrase I use, uh, I stole from uh, Jean-Anthelme Briat-Savarin, who recommended this in 1825. And I think it's still true. Some of us have to rigidly abstain to keep our insulin levels low enough that we don't accumulate excess fat. Some of us can get by just cleaning up the carb content of what we do eat. 
Chris, you look relatively lean. <laughs> were you always, are you, and were you always? Me personally? Uh, no, Chris. Oh, Chris, sorry. I'm glad you asked. No, I think, yeah, Casey, uh, I'd be interested in, in hearing from you too, because that is that's just something I wanted to bring up. I, I thought that at one point you mentioned in one of your books that uh, that you were heavier. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, uh, you know, I played the defensive line in Division II football and the mid 1970s. So back then, if I ate constantly, I could get up to almost 240. I'm about six foot two, and I did eat constantly. I mean, massive amounts of food. Um, you know, people like me tend to get bigger as we get older. Um, when football ended, I dropped down to 212. You know, I starved myself for a month. I stayed at 212, 215 for about eight years. And then I started, you know, turned 30 and started gaining about two pounds a year. And then when I was doing the research for this New York Times magazine story, this infamous story, I tried Atkins as an experiment and lost 25 pounds effortlessly. And I fell off it, gained the weight back. And then I decided, started to understand the physiology, the endocrinology of why this would work. And I went back to it and I've stayed with it pretty much ever since. So right now I probably weigh around 215, which for me is, my wife would say, don't lose any more weight. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I, I have kind of a similar story, but I mean, I was born in 74. So when I was in my teens and twenties, I was hitting the gym a lot. And like a lot of people, I, I think, uh, the gym is actually kind of the enemy of a lot of men because we justify eating crap in order to get big. And that can be problematic. You can get injuries, but of course, then you, things like diabetes and metabolic disorders can result from that too. But you don't think of yourself as out of shape because you're lifting weights for three hours a day. Uh, so I got up to about 240 pounds at one point. I'm only five, nine. Um, but, uh, but then once my twins came along 15 years ago, almost 16 years ago, then I realized I wasn't gonna be able to keep up with them if I didn't lose weight. So I got back down to about 170 doing a combination of, uh, things, but which is basically what my Marine Corps boot camp weight was. That's what I, I wanted to get back to that. Um, but the idea of calorie counting was always on my mind ever since nutrition class in high school, where the teacher was pushing this idea of vegetarianism and high carb, carbohydrate, low fat diet. And then um, I kind of followed that into obesity, really. And it wasn't until I started to focus on uh, this idea, which really stuck out to me in your books, which is that calorie counting, counting is just not sustainable. And you don't have to count calories if you follow the keto or the paleo way because then you'll, you'll eat to satiation and you'll be full enough for a long period of time. And I found that to be factual. And that's the other way to think about it is you just remove the foods that are fattening. So your body goes back to being the weight it would be normally without this fattening process happen. I often think that your high school, you know, senior in high school, or in your case, you know, boot camp is probably about the, the ideal that you could achieve 
But yeah, the counting calories is crazy. I remember I went on this diet in the 90s. And, you know, I lived in Los Angeles in Santa Monica, and I had a friend who had a personal trainer who was the single healthiest person I'd ever seen. And he told me that I should go on a very low-fat diet, and he gave me instructions. He said, you'll lose six pounds in two weeks, which I did. And it was, you know, it was uh, egg whites. For breakfast, I'd eat oatmeal with a little apple juice because I couldn't use milk because there was fat in the milk. And then I'd snack on egg whites. I'd eat lunch. It'd be, you know, white rice and skinless chicken breasts and could eat fruit. And um, after I lost six pounds, I gained it back pretty quickly. And then I continued. I used to eat fresh pasta. I'd eat pasta for lunch with fresh salsa. So no olive oil, no butter, no nothing. Just you'd buy fresh salsa at the supermarkets. And I, one day I was sitting there thinking, this is crazy. You know, if I know what I, I'm eating half a box of spaghetti. That's what it takes to fill me up. And that's 800 calories, not including the fresh salsa. And I know it's 800 calories because I'm looking at the, it says how many calories it is on the box. And, um, and I could have like two quarter pounders with cheese from McDonald's. And they'd also be 800 calories. So it was really confusing. And meanwhile, I was just getting, you know, putting on two pounds a year, working back up towards 240 without really eating anything other than a very low fat, high protein, high carb diet. So, yeah, they're depending on what you believe, you know, these, these, I think of them as different paradigms, very different paradigms of how we think about weight. And one, the, the sort of brain regulates fat accumulation and does it, like I said, through regulating intake and expenditure. The other, it's all peripheral. It's all happening in the body and the brain plays a role through its, you know, hormonal and central nervous system effects on, on fat metabolism. But they have very profoundly different implications for how you uh, reverse obesity and how you, you know, prevent uh, the societal epidemic or try to reverse the societal epidemic. And certainly what you tell people and, you know, how they have to think about their fat accumulation. Definitely. Gosh. In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, the school paper sent a reporter over to my office and Ask my opinion about something. I'm curious what your response would have been to this. And and you too, Casey, I want you to think about this. The question was um, that, uh, well, the school cafeteria is putting the calories for each item on there. And there's a belief among some of the students that they're lying about the the amount of calories that were on there. So they asked me, what do I think about that? Um, So Casey, what, what would your response be? That's a good question. I mean, you're just chasing the wrong horse. Like it's not so what? Like it doesn't matter. It, it, it's it's that after effect. I mean, I'm I'm listening to the things that Gary was eating and just thinking, like, yeah, you're consuming a ton of calories of pasta and salsa, but that says nothing to what you're going to consume in two hours when you are starving. And so in that way, it's just it's it's you're 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 following the wrong, it's not gonna help. It's it's Gee whiz, like that's the number of calories, but it, it practically doesn't do anything. Well, that's I lived in New York when uh, I think it was Bloomberg started insisting that New York restaurants post calories. And again, yeah, it's exactly so. If I eat, uh, you know, I've got a choice between a 200 calorie scone or a 300 calorie egg bite. 
and I make the choice for the 200 calorie scone because it's lower in calories, but those calories are primarily carbohydrate and they're highly refined flour. And that's going to, you know, trigger a, a physiological, hormonal, endocrinological response. It's going to foster fat accumulation, whereas the egg bite isn't. I'm thinking, because I used to go into Starbucks and think about this while you're waiting in line, right? You're waiting in front of all the snacks that had the little calories on them, 430 calories for this. And it's sort of, you're chasing the wrong horse. There's got to be a better metaphor, a better cliche <laughs> yeah. for it. But, I, you know, that's... Well, I was at a loss to come up with a, a nice uh, metaphor too, but that's pretty much what I said too. I said, why does it matter? I said, they're putting that on there because they're trying to make you think that they're actually health conscious, but it's really actually because they're serving you things like pizza and pasta and muffins, which aren't any good for you. Yeah, no, just it puts a responsibility. I mean, it also allows them to serve smaller portions, right? So they can save money. Yeah. Because it's all oh, about, sure. I mean, it's, I was at a conference in San Francisco, uh, you know, discussing obesity. This was about three or four years. It must have been four years ago now. And there was a researcher from uh, Oregon Health Sciences researcher who was responding, who was referring to high calorie foods being obese, being obesogenic. And I'm thinking high calorie foods, that's, that's like talking about a high volume liquid. Um, it's, completely dependent on the size of the portion. There's no such thing as I saw, you know, butter can be a high calorie food if it's a lot of butter, but if it's a little butter, it's not a high calorie food. Like what is this? It's, and it was an indicative to me of how this concept, how once they, they made obesity about energy balance and calories in versus calories out, um, they started fostering thought processes that ultimately were kind of absurd. And they, the only way you can deal with it is never asking any really critical questions about what you're thinking. This is why there's a chapter in why we get fat called 20 calories a day. And there's a similar discussion in, in, in you know, the case against sugar and the case for keto. But if you store as fat 20 calories a day into excess, which is the equivalent of like, uh, you know, an almond, You'll, you'll grow up those 20 calories a day. will come out to like 7,000 calories a year, which is two pounds of fat a year, which is 20 pounds in a decade. So you'll go from being lean to obese over the course of, uh, say, a decade and a half, two decades. And all it takes to do it is to be out of energy balance by 20 calories a day. Nobody can detect that. And we can't even create, uh, uh, you know, I, I doubt that um, uh, you could measure that. Well, you could, you might be able to measure the caloric intake to 20 calories a day if you're allowed to put that food in the bomb calorimeter and measure it, you know, accurately. But you certainly can't measure expenditure to that accuracy. So it's sort of, you know, these these de facto absurd concepts are so deeply integrated into the science that the way people deal with it is to never think about it. So they could use phrases like high calorie foods without ever actually thinking, does that mean anything? Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a little bit like, you know, common quote you'll see in discussions like this is that, is that the red queen or the white queen from Alice in Wonderland which says that we're taught here to believe six impossible things before breakfast. Yeah. You know, they're so used to believing impossible things that they've simply stopped asking questions about, trying to understand what it is they're even writing or saying. And 
you know, to say that makes people like me sound like a quack and I get it, you know, who, who are you going to believe? But I oftentimes think it has to do with volume of, uh, of voices and so in proportions, you know, so if there's a thousand uh, authors or just uh, pundits even out there that are saying one thing and then there's uh, 50 that are saying what you're saying, then it's just going to, it's going to be difficult to compete with that. Although it's starting to, it seems like it's becoming a lot more mainstream, wouldn't you say? Well, it is. And I, I two responses. So first of all, it is. And the reason I think it's becoming more mainstream is because it works. Yeah. So people, the world, more and more people each year are struggling with weight control and, and blood sugar control, particularly glycemic control, diabetes status. And they learn that if they give up carbohydrates specifically and replace them with mostly fat or fat and protein, they get healthier and people see them get healthier. So it spreads from patient to patient and doctor to doctor because it's just, it's effective. It used to be that we were taught it would kill you. That was the whole Atkins is a quack story. This is going to kill you. So if you went on this diet and you lost 60 pounds, I used to meet people all the time or I'd get emails saying, yeah, I, I did Atkins, you know, when I was younger, but my doctor said I lost 60 pounds, but my doctor said I was going to kill myself. So I went off it and I gained the weight back. That was a kind of common phenomenon. Now, one of the things, you know, Nina and I have been able to contribute to is this belief that um, people don't, sorry, um, you know, it's not going to kill you. And there's been, you know, dozens and dozens of dozens of clinical trials at least demonstrate that over the short term, people get healthier eating this diet. The conventional thinking is still over the long term, their LDL is going to go up and that's going to give them a heart attack and they're going to die prematurely. But over a year or two, clearly people get healthier. So that's changed the way people think. And that spreads, but it's, a, it's up against a very powerful sort of vegetarian vegan movement that's now, you know, that's, that's motivated by ethical arguments against, uh, you know, uh, using or eating animals for human, you know, profit and believes that animal agriculture is, is the prime major contributor to climate change and that this is an unnecessary contribution that has to be stopped. And then they're fed by this sort of conventional thinking that a plant-based diet is a healthy diet. So there are these two competing forces. One is people get healthier when they eat, you know, ketogenic, low-carb, high-fat diets, undeniably. And people want to be healthy and they want their children to be healthier and they recognize this. And more and more, they're beginning to understand that this isn't like a temporary fix. You go on to lose 20 pounds and then you go off it. But they're just some of us have to eat this way for life if we want to be healthy. And so um, the signal to noise problem is fascinating. So back in 2011, I co-founded this nonprofit nutrition science initiative with Dr. Peter Atia. And my thinking back then was that we could shift the thinking in the field if we could get the research community to do the right experiments and get the scientists to see that they had, you know, made errors in how they conceived of obesity. And then that would trickle down to the, 
health organizations and everyone else, and we would shift thinking. And we were naive in a lot of different ways, um, despite getting a lot of funding from uh, the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. Um, you know, I think the learning experience, well, was a lot of learning experiences. But one of the things I realized was that even if you could publish a study that you think is that you, you fund a study that that's capable of coming up with a fairly unambiguous conclusion about you know what's the fundamental cause of obesity um and you could get that study published in a reasonably good journal which is you know always an interesting challenge because the people are going to be reviewing that the, the study you know the peer review thing are going to be people who basically think that the study must have gotten the wrong answer. Um, but every week, there's a, on average about 150 articles published that are relative, related to obesity and nutrition. Um, I know this because there's a, a newsletter sent out from the University of Indiana that lists it's got obesity and energetics, and it's all the articles published that week that they noticed. Wow. And it's usually about 150 a week. So if you think about it and say it takes two and a half months, 10 weeks to get an article into print, which is short, that means that there might be 1,500 articles at any one time that are in the pipeline, okay, that are pretty much all encapsulating the conventional wisdom because they're all written when the conventional wisdom had no challenge. So now one article of the 1500 is a signal. That's like definitive. That's a really well done study that could definitively settle this issue of whether obesity is caused by energy imbalance or by the, you know, physiological hormonal effects of eating carbohydrates. Um, but it's going to be published along with 150 articles that week. 1500 articles in the 10 weeks that followed, whatever thousands of articles were already been written and were in the peer review stage or had been articles that had been written and interpreted by the end. You have this tsunami of conventional wisdom that's going to wash out almost any imaginable signal. It's just the way it's the problem with you know, scientists talk all the time, good scientists talk about the necessity in science to, to never uh, trust a hypothesis that hasn't been definitively tested, rigorously and definitively tested. You know, the Nobel laureate physicist Louis Alvarez, you say, only tests, only trust what you can prove. And the danger was a situation exactly like this, where you embrace an idea that's not rigorously tested, doesn't even make sense ultimately. And then you build not just institutions, scientific institutions based on and disciplines, but food institutions and public health institutions. And you've got health organizations promoting this message. And everybody believes it's true. It becomes virtually impossible. Science in that situation ceases to be correcting, self-correcting, which is what we always hear about science. And you see this happening in fields everywhere. It's the danger of embracing, you know, whenever you get an interaction between some kind of public health issue and hard science. The hard science is you cannot afford to believe this is true until you've tested it rigorously. And the public health argument is we don't have time to test it. People are dying out there. So let's assume it's true. 
That's right. And will change down the line if the evidence turns out not to be true. But what people don't realize is that change as down the line gets longer and longer, it gets harder and harder to ever change. So. Right. The reverse isn't true. They're not, uh, they're not saying, well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, assess why these people are dying at such a young age um, or uh, why they're getting more obese. Um, I mean, all they'd have to do, I was in my, my wife's hometown a number of years ago in a pizzeria that had some old pictures of marching bands in the town from the 1960s. And everybody had the same body type. Every single person did. Everybody was thin, men and women too. And the same, those people's kids now are much bigger. It's not, and, and the judgment that comes from the next, that generation, look down, why are you guys eating so much? Well, what do you mean? They didn't just choose to do that. The food environment changed. Well, this is, and everyone acknowledges it's a food environment, and then the question becomes what? And the, the thing is, you can't get away, you can't, we're not going to get away from processed foods, ultra-processed foods, whatever you want. As long as you want to provide foods everyone, for everyone year-round in significant quantities that aren't going to go bad and aren't going to get spoiled, it's, you know, we're always going to have ultra-processed foods. So what is it about the ultra-processed foods that trigger Obesity, ultra processed foods is the latest, you know, uh, catchword, uh, cliche. And for those of us, you know, I still prefer pollens, food like substances. Yeah. But even then, it's, you know, what is it about those foods? That's a scientific question. Is it that they just make people eat too much because we can't judge our intake when we're eating them? Or do they foster a metabolic milieu that fosters fat accumulation? You know, that's a scientific question that would help if we knew. Definitely. Uh, I'm curious. I, I think I think our listeners would uh, would be interested in this, too. If all three of us could go through the kinds of things that we eat on a daily basis, uh, because this is uh, I mean, I think people can't believe when I tell them that I'll sit down with uh, a little a tub of uh, sour cream and um, and some uh, uh, the pig skins. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> pork rinds. Oh, pork rinds. There you go. Yeah, I mean that can be a meal right there, and it's cheap too. I can eat. That's about a dollar's worth of food right there, and I don't have to cook it ahead of time, and it fills me up, and it's got lots of protein in it and fat too. Yeah, you know it's funny because I have my equivalents to that, but if I say it, I could easily be considered. You know, it's like Jesus, Taubes eats that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you take. Hey, I said pork Bacon. rinds. Here's, here's the, this is okay. I'm still waiting for this one to kill me. Um, Make bacon in the morning, crispy bacon, put it in the refrigerator. So yeah, it only takes about an hour to get cold. And then a slice of Kerrygold butter, like a thin, you know, eighth of an inch slice. And you put it on the bacon, you break the bacon in half because it's crisp and cold now. And you have like a bacon and butter sandwich. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's got to it's got to be deadly. Right. I mean, I yeah. acknowledge that it absolutely has to be deadly. And yet um, I seem pretty healthy, knock on wood. And, um, you know, you it's. Uh, yeah, it's not that I don't get vitamin uh, vegetables, green vegetables, although. You know, again, if you rigorously assess the nutrition literature i'm not actually sure there's any reason to eat them other than that's what our mothers told us to eat in the 60s and 70s um yeah what about you casey 
Uh, well, for me personally, I'm, I've been following more of a carnivore style diet for the last three years. And so I can say I have not eaten any, you know, any kind of quantity of vegetables in the last few years. Um, I will have some carbohydrates every now and again, but my, my diet is primarily, um, red meat. Mostly I've got a chuck roast cooking downstairs in the instant pot that I'll eat later. And, you know, sometimes I'll do ground beef or meatballs or things like that. But I think the key is to just really find the foods that make you feel very full and just go after them, really eat them until you feel very satiated. It's a totally different feeling that I don't think most of the listeners have ever really related to is the feeling of being fully satiated versus just eating a meal and getting, you know, you're full in your stomach. But again, like a few hours later, you're so starving. You're going to eat anything. You're going to tear through your kitchen like grizzly bear. Um, you know, and, and it, it is that, that kind of messaging that like, if you eat this omelet, you know, and you have some steak with it, boy, that's so many calories all at once. You want to really avoid that, but you don't realize what that after effect is. And so well, those kinds of foods, the way, the way I would think about it is those foods aren't fattening. So you don't have to think about how much you're eating or how many calories, because they're not fat. They're just not going to have that effect because it's not about the calories, it's about the carbohydrates, they don't have the carbs. I was going to say, when I one of the experiments we funded, uh, Energy Balance Consortium, was these researchers from Columbia and uh, University and the NIH and this Pennington Biomedical Research Center, and, uh, and we would meet every um, quarter at a, a Doubletree Hotel in Bethesda, Maryland, next to NIH, because the guys from the NIH, they have complications with travel and all the rules. So we'd meet close to them. And I would meet with these researchers, some of the most prestigious research in the obesity field, and they were all getting heavier in the years that this experiment took. And they all believe that the reason people get fat is because they eat too much. And the way to lose weight is to eat less. And they believe that if the ketogenic diet did anything, if the way you eat, Casey, did anything, it was because people ate less. And I would say, you know, you have to understand it's a different phenomenon. You know, those of us who have dieted our whole life, which is basically many of us who, you know, it's like from the time you're an adult, from the time I was, you know, I mean, I went from... When I finished football, I went from trying to be as heavy as possible to trying to not be as heavy as possible. Um, there's a certain phenomenon that comes with dieting where you're hungry all the time, you know, where you're restricting food, where you're eating. I remember I used to go, I lived in New York. I worked at Rockefeller Center. I'd go to lunch with my colleagues from this Discover magazine, and we'd eat in some diner, and I would order like this tuna fish, you know, on a celery little scoop of tuna fish. And I was starving. I weighed 220 pounds and this is my lunch. And then I would be staring at the meals of people next to you. And then I'd say, you switch to this and it's, an, it's a different phenomenon. You got to trust me on this. You lose weight without ever being hungry. And it's just like your body is shedding fat. I can't, and I would explain this to these guys. I'd say, why don't you try it? Okay, for a month, it, you know, look, you're getting heavier. <laughs> Why not? And I couldn't even get them to try it. Right. And my feeling was because if I got them to try it and it worked, it was sort of like, you know, the way I, I assume, imagine if I was, you know, uh, uh, belonged to some religious cult and I was telling them that they should try, you know, going to like Reverend Moon seminars because then they would be happier. 
it would actually be little for them to benefit because if they were happier, then they'd be somebody their colleagues look down on, right, as a Mooney. And if they weren't happier, they'd feel that they had wasted all their time. But I could not convince these guys to even try it because I kept saying, look, it's just, I know it's, it's not about eating less. It's a different, I can eat as much as I want. I could never do that before. You know, I could go down now and eat those pork rinds and I don't worry about getting fatter. I really like how you emphasize that and why we get fat too, because uh, when, when you were talking about, it's not about calories in calories out, then um, of course, in the end, there is your act. I think I do eat less in the end. I'm probably consuming less calories, but it's not something that I'm aware of because it's because there's nothing in the food that I'm eating that would make me want to eat more than I need. It's like the body knows how much it needs. It's just like these Pacific Islanders. Um, or I, I was on the island of Diego Garcia when I was in the Marines where I met my wife and there used to be native Islanders there. And if you look at pictures of them in the sixties before they were removed, they look incredible. And they were just living off of coconuts. That's all there is coconuts and fish and crabs. And that's just high fat right there. And they were very, very healthy. And now that they're giving, you know, subsidized processed food, they're incredibly obese. And so it just makes sense, obviously. I often wonder, like, did I eat less when I transitioned to, you know, what I thought of as Atkins at the time and is now keto? Um, and I don't actually know because there was there were calories yeah because I was drinking fruit juices I was drinking apple juice and orange juice they were okay in my world because they're and I would do things like jamba juices so you go on a workout you know work out for an hour burn off however many calories you thought you burned off and then you know could go to a jamba juice and have a 400 calorie orange banana puree with protein powder and feel like it was a you would balance your intake with your expenditure so i don't you know in all honesty but the the actual phenomena of dieting when you're trying to lose weight by calorie restriction is an entirely different phenomenon than trying to lose weight by carb restriction yeah and i often think now like if i was just playing with this idea of an experiment how can I find this? Okay, I live in Oakland, California. I'm 2,500 miles from New York City. But I wonder if I could do an experiment where every day I go to Peter Luger's Steakhouse in Brooklyn, which according to the New York Times is not nearly as good as it used to be, but it's still going to be more than good enough for me. And they serve a steak for three, which is a T-bone with this fatty sauce on top of it. And I got to get the bacon, thick bacon appetizer. And if I ate that every day for a month, I'm pretty sure we could get somebody to do the calculation on the calories. It's it's going to be hard to know for sure because the fatty, you know, the sauce that you eat it with has got a lot of calories in it. So I'm going to have that. But I bet I could average well over 3,000 calories a day at Peter Luger's and do that for a month. Could I convince anyone? that this is independent of calories. Interesting. You know? Yeah, um, kind of like uh, the supersize me in reverse. And well, yeah. And actually there was there are people who have done this supersize me experiment without carbs and demonstrated the inability to gain weight, even eating wow. this, um, uh, what's his name in the UK? Uh, wonderful 
kid by my standards who did an experiment with like 5,000 calories a day for a month with or without carbs and, you know, showed the difference in his body type. Again, it's hard to judge from photos and, um, you know, ideal world, you get researchers really, you know, documenting it. There's, I mean, again, the more you think about this was the learning experience of Nusi. the more you think about experiments, the more complications there are in ways they could be misinterpreted. And, but, um, but you brought up an important uh, scenario that a lot of us face when we're trying to diet or change the way we eat, which is going out. And so when you go out, and there, uh, and you're on a, a low fat diet. The options are kind of limited, and you feel like you're being left out, right? You get a couple, some broccoli. Ask them not to put the the butter on it. You're trying, you know, nitpick and all that. But I don't know about. Uh, have you found though that it's actually easier to go out on a keto diet? Well, when I first started this, again, when I did it as an experiment in 2001 or so for, and I thought of it as Atkins, I lived in New York City, so I ate out every meal. That's what we do. And, you know, back then I was, you know, in a kitchen the size of the trunk of a mid-sized car and you just, um, so I ate uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner out. And breakfast would be eggs and bacon and sausage, maybe with tomato slices, a couple of tomato slices. thought that was benign. And then lunch would be, you know, half a roast chicken, hold the potatoes, double order of broccoli or half a roast chicken, hold the potatoes, give me a salad or a hamburger without the bun, hold the French fries, give me a salad. I mean, it's, it was always very easy to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, if I was really you know, seriously obese, maybe I was somehow still getting too much carbs by not being careful enough. You know, I would order Italian food for the family. I would, instead of getting, you know, pasta with some sauce, I would get meatballs alone and I would eat the meatballs in a green salad. So to, to me, it was always easy to do. And in the case for keto, I talk about how easy it is to do. It's just not eating the starch, not eating the bread. It's about what you don't eat, which you rather than what you are for the most part, it's, it gets complicated with, you know, sauces at Chinese restaurants sure. and a lot most, you know, barbecue sauces, which are loaded with sugar. And, you know, but many of us who are only moderately overweight to mildly obese don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Unless we want to, um, you know, for others, it gets, you learn to stay away from sauces basically because of you know, the cornstarch in them or the, you have to avoid breaded foods, but for the most part, it's just, you know, order the roast chicken and the steak, ask them to hold the potatoes and give you a double order of whatever the greens are. And you're eating a keto diet yeah. crazy when people say they can do, Oh, they're too hard to stick with. You know, it's like, don't eat the carbs, dude. How hard is that? <laughs> Have you found that to be the case too, Casey? Yeah, 100%. I mean, for, for Gary to make this experiment with the steak and bacon really scientifically valid, he's going to need some other volunteers. So I'm already just raising my hand and saying, like, yeah, I'll do this with you. Um, just in the name of science. Um, hey. But yeah, like you can eat the same few things that are absolutely delicious you never get sick of them. You can have as much as you like and you feel great and you've got great energy. Like 
I think a lot about what you said in the case for keto, as far as like corn, like if you told a normal person, you can't eat corn for the rest of your life, they'll say, oh, that's absolutely impossible. I can't do that. Well, Gary Tobbs has a crazy allergic reaction to corn and he feels absolutely terrible if he eats corn. Um, okay. So he's not going to eat corn. That's makes that decision very easy. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because that that's so that's a man I grew up with a corn allergy. Actually, I had a lot of allergies, and ironically or coincidentally, they were all to, you know, grains. Um, but I learned pretty early in life, by the time I was seven or eight, that if I had corn, I was gonna have gastrointestinal distress and it was painful and I didn't want to do it. So, you know, my mother dragged me to a the allergy doctor. We established I have an allergy to corn. I stopped eating corn. Um, you know, I go to movies occasionally I'll have popcorn, but I realize afterwards I'm going to pay the price for it. It's sort of, it is what it is. Um, I don't think of myself as being on a corn-free diet, although for the most part I am on a corn-free diet. It's just corn is not a food I can eat. So again, it's how you think about the problem is we've been taught to think about obesity as a calorie energy issue. And so there are no bad foods. There's only too much of them. And so you could eat anything, just don't eat too much of it, except that there's no way to do that if the foods are carbohydrate rich. So the other way to think about it is if some foods are fattening, I can't eat them. If I don't want to be fat, I can't eat these foods. I'm going to miss them for a while, just like I used to be. A lot of my writing is influenced by the fact that I was a smoker when I was young. And it took me 20 years to quit smoking successfully and... I was miserable for the first three weeks and very unhappy for the first three months and mildly unhappy for the first year. And eventually I got to the point where I can't imagine that I ever smoked and I would never go back to it. It's just, you know, my wife can smoke socially. She can have a cigarette with her friends and there used to be a pack of Marlboro lights somewhere in our apartment, but I can't do it. Yeah. So I don't, <laughs> you know, it's like, and it's clearly the same is true with carbs and sugar. The question is how long it takes. Some people embrace this way of eating effortlessly. Some people, you know, the it's the carbs that give their life meaning. It's like once we, you know, used to be like if you go to France, right, you'd go to a cafe, you, you drink alcohol, you smoke cigarettes, you engage in, in educated conversations with your friends about social events you know and in the uk it's the pub um here we kind of cigarettes are sinful and will kill you hanging out at the pub it's gonna cause all kinds of problems so all we had left were carbs and sugar yeah and it's the food that makes us happy and it's hard i get it it's hard for people to think about giving that up but the argument is if you know how healthy you could be, if you do the experiment, give it up for three months or two months and see how much better you feel, then you'll know what the balance is between what you're losing and what you're gaining. Yeah, definitely. And uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention what I think. I don't know if this was your intention in your book. And, and Casey, feel free to comment on this, too. But uh, what I took away from all your books is uh, that the information presenting is highlighting why people should not feel shame about being obese. In other words, there's because you're decentralizing the argument, not, not saying it's a choice issue 
as much as um, you know the, these processed foods, the sugar, the white flour, that's all been introduced without our agency. And so it's just that stuff competes with all of the foods that you're talking about, the high fat and the high protein meats and things like that. And so if people just get that information, then they can make that choice. But really they've been inundated with the wrong information for so long. And that's the what's creating these results for hundreds of millions of people around the world. Oh, and that's the thing. So you're born with this predisposition to become obese or diabetic. Okay. That's the implication. And that predisposition is passed on from generation to generation. So it gets worse. Each generation, there are more and more of us are predisposed to get fat and or diabetic in this food environment. And then beginning in the 1980s, primarily, although it sort of begins in the 1960s, the government starts giving us this message that the problem with modern foods is the fat content. We should all eat low-fat foods, which are carb means high-carb foods, because you replace the fat with carbohydrates. So we should eat exactly the foods that are making us fat and or diabetic. And if we are getting fatter, we should just eat less of them so we're hungry all the time. So now you get a license. So the, the you know, people who are predisposed to struggle with this awful physiological burden are told not to do the one thing that will help and instead do the opposite. So the guidance you get, when we were at the, the Nutrition Science Initiative, NUSI, my not-for-profit, was functioning, we used to talk about there's a food environment that makes this problem worse, all these high-carb, high-refined sugar foods that you know often advertise themselves as low in cholesterol or no gluten or you know pick your health claim but then there's also a knowledge environment there's a message you get the information you get to deal with the problem that you are born with and that is then triggered by the food environment so the food environments makes it worth but the knowledge environment shifted from so in the 1960s the conventional wisdom is these carbohydrate rich foods are fattening if you don't want to be fat, you only eat pasta, bread, potatoes, rice, beer, sweets, because those make people fat. It's what, you know, and then when the 1980s, those are heart healthy diet foods. And if you're now getting fat or getting diabetic and you go see your doctor, he says, oh, no, you could eat all of those you want. Just don't eat the foods that are not fattening, the yeah. cheese and the dairy and the Red meat is going to give you colon cancer and the diet, the fat in the meat is going to give you heart disease. And you get all these messages to do exactly the wrong thing. And this coincides with this explosion of obesity and diabetes in the population. Yeah. So, and of course, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, you can't blame man. That's the horror about, I want to again, drag these experts outside and, 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 you know, we talk about the difference in how people's bodies have changed from the 1960 to today, the band members and the photograph on the Pacific Island. All you have to do is go to Europe, where people still tend to look like they did when we were young here, although that will change. Yeah. And it's the idea is that these people are getting fatter because they can't balance their intake to their expenditure. There's something wrong with their brain as opposed to the fact that we have created a race of people are predisposed to get fat. They, we can't help it. They can't help it. It's not their brains. It's their bodies are trying. It's like, you know, and that's a horrible message to give people. The 
book I want to write next when I'm done with the diabetes book will be on this energy balance thinking. And the title I want is the history or the anatomy or the biography of a very bad idea. Yeah. And the subtitle will be energy balance, fat shaming, and the failed science of obesity. Wow, because fat shaming is so built into this energy balance thinking. It's like, there's no way you can, I mean, the, all, I say this in why we get fat. Basically the whole modern history of obesity science is trying to figure out a way to blame obesity on how much people eat without blaming it on their characters. So you blame the food environment, the industry, the creating ultra processed foods, you know, but ultimately come up with a hypothesis that blames their behavior and fat chains. And it's not about that. Yeah. Wow. So much to think about. Casey, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Um, no, I don't. I mean, on our podcast, I challenge a few of our guests um, at the very end to say like, look, let's, let's just assume that, that Gary is wrong. He's wrong about everything. He, he missed the science. It's, it's yeah. totally wrong. Why would I not just look at Gary and think, holy smokes like this guy is totally fit he's really healthy he's got great energy very generous with his time i like you chris same way the ben bickmans of the world and the sean bakers of the world and the nina teichels of the world and all these people that are living by example if we just throw out all the facts why would i why would i not care about any of it and just live like you guys are living because you're healthy and happy and and again so generous with your time and everything, like I'd screw it, but I'll just live like you guys. It's great. Well, first of all, I'll be happier when I finish this diabetes book. So I wouldn't get that, that carried away about how happy I am at the moment. Um, <laughs> here's the issue. I mean, cause you can find the same people, you know, the world, this is the thing you have no idea. First of all, we have no idea how long I'm going to live. I could, you know, we could sign off. I could push leave on the Zoom thing and have a massive heart attack because of the damn bacon and butter I've been eating. Huh. Um, huh. The, uh, so we don't know how long I'm going to live. We don't know how long I would live if I were eating differently. That's one of the problems with this whole thing is we've been, the low fat thing is this hypothetical idea that if we eat low fat diets, we will live longer. We have no way to tell if it's going to work. Whereas we're saying if you eat low carb diets, you'll be healthier and you'll feel it. You'll see it on the scale. It's an immediate difference. Um, so that's the problem is, yeah, we look healthy and we seem healthy, but you have no idea how much healthier we might look if I ate like, you know, pick your favorite vegetarian or vegan influencer, because these people also look healthy and seem healthy. And the problem is it's the people who aren't healthy, who are manifesting the obesity. And I, you know, there's a, one of the influences in the obesity community is um, Jimmy Moore in the low carb community, Jimmy living La Vida, low carb Moore. And Jimmy used to weigh 400 pounds. And then he went on Atkins and he got down to 200 pounds and he wrote a book about it, his first book. And he struggles with his weight, but we have no idea how much the guy would weigh had he continued to eat the way he used to. So some people look at him and say, why would you want to look at Jimmy? He's up to 280 or he's 250 or he's, you know, 300 now. And clearly he doesn't look like, you know, pick your bodybuilder who eats a low fat diet, but they're fundamentally different to begin with. So this is what I mean about always keeping in mind what the information is really telling you and what it isn't. And then why these, you know, because again, the world is full of 27 year old, you know, vegans who I would, love to look like but i don't think i would when i was 27 
they think I would, but I'm, I, you know, I, I tried that. Um, anyway, so that's, that, that's the issue. Um, but thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, you have a great body of work. And, and I just have to say um, that uh, that so much of the way that I live my life now is based on your work. So I want to just thank you personally for that. Wow. And thank you. That means a lot. I mean, this is how, you know, this is how it spreads for good or bad. Right. So, you know. And I know Casey's got your books too. Yeah, absolutely. Right behind me. Uh, one was given to me by one of my clients who I just saw a few hours ago, who's a former type two diabetic. And your your influence obviously was huge in my life and a lot of the guests we have on our show. But also, you know, I look at I look at him and and see you know a former type two diabetic who doesn't take insulin anymore and is happy and is enjoying his grandkids. And so I think that message is just so important. It was really an honor to be able to sit in on this conversation with uh, two people that I very much respect and admire. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Right on. All right. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for listening in to another episode of Connected by Controversy. And uh, we've been talking to Casey Ruff out in Utah and author Gary Taubes. We look forward to your next book. Did I actually pronounce your name right? Is it Taubes or Taubes? Oh, it's both, but the Taubes is slightly preferred. So okay. you got it right. Taubes right. is what always gets me. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. And if, if you if you are listening, go ahead and give us a review, any kind of feedback. Uh, you know how to get in touch with me. Thanks. So thank you again so very much for tuning into this really special conversation on the Connected by Controversy podcast with Chris White. Be sure to go check him out on YouTube. Be sure to give him a subscription. There's lots of really interesting conversations on his channel. He does a great job interviewing people. And as always, we would really love and appreciate a rating and review on Apple if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio. This is really the way to get this message out. As Gary Tobbs said in the interview, it is passion projects like this that help get the message out and help to bring awareness to people um, that there's other ways to be really healthy and fit that aren't exactly mainstream and can maybe be a little controversial, but can also be really life-saving and something that can really improve a lot of lives. So we really appreciate you and we're so grateful for you and for listening. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.